Morning, everyone. Ah, see, you heard me this time. Super excited about this new series, the book of Hebrews, and all that it has to offer. It is by far, when someone asks me, what is your favorite book of the Bible? I know we're not supposed to have one. This is definitely it, though, for me. For me, it is the absolute summary of the entire Old Testament and the summary of the New Testament in just one little book. Was there something on the screen? No? Okay. So, um, oh, I don't know how that confused me for a second. Um, oh, we're going to restart. Oh, this is what it was. I didn't take a sip. Ah, okay. Good morning. Good morning. Da -da -da -da. Mike's on. Book of Hebrews. Have I mentioned how I like the book of Hebrews? I have? Okay. So, the book of Hebrews is basically like a compass. A compass needle always points north. That's its direction. That's its goal. And so the epistle of Hebrews is always going to point us back to Christ. Always back to Christ. Now, in seminary, I had a professor who taught uh, homiletics, the art of preaching, and he said, there's really only one rule you have to follow when you're preaching. Lots, well, there's lots of rules, but he, this was the one he pointed out that day. He said, at the end of your message, can a Jewish rabbi deliver that message? And that kind of caught us by surprise. What do you mean? Can a Jewish rabbi preach the message you just preached? Or he goes, what about uh, an Amman, someone of the Muslim faith? Or what about someone from a cult? Would they be able to deliver the same message you delivered? And the point being is that in a Christian church with a Christian message from God's Word, a Jewish rabbi should never be able to preach what a Christian preaches from the pulpit. Neither should an Amman. Because it should always be focused on Christ. There should always be a direction to who is Christ and what has he done. Is Christ elevated in that message or are funny stories elevated? Is a, is a funny message, a joke, or, or a story without any relationship to Christ? What is the emphasis of that message? It should be Christ. And the book of Hebrews does that beautifully and perfectly every single verse. It points you back to Christ, Christ, Christ. So I'm telling you now, at the very beginning of this series, we will be talking about Jesus Christ. He will be the focus of every passage. He will be the focus of every message. He will be the focus of every time you step out of here, you should be able to say, that was about Jesus Christ. I heard about his glory, his majesty, his power, his work, his promise, and his future for me. Christ must be elevated and appreciated and glorified in everything we hear from the book of Hebrews. If you were never to read an Old Testament book and all you had was the book of Hebrews, you would fully understand the Old Testament. It is chuck-filled with illustrations and applications and an unfolding of the Old Testament like no other book in all of Scripture. It is absolutely unique in its ability to summarize the Old Testament and to apply it through the New Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 12, we read this verse, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. 
The glorious high throne. Now, this is in the context of talking about God's majesty, about his beauty, about who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And there's this declaration about the throne of God being our sanctuary, meaning his throne is a place of safety. It is a place of rest. It is a place of peace. It is a place of comfort. It is a place of joy, meaning that in his presence, we have all that we need to live this life that God has called us to live, both now and in eternity. It is all summarized and focused upon the throne. And who sits upon the throne? God the Father. Who sits at his right hand? God the Son. A glorious high throne from the beginning is a place of our sanctuary. And the book of Hebrews is going to comfort us with that message time and time again and take us into the very throne room of God and we will see behind the scenes activities and truth about why did that happen in the Old Testament? He's going to reveal why it happened. Why are there sacrifices? He's going to reveal why there was blood sacrifices. Why was there a temple? He's going to reveal why was there a temple. What is the priesthood and why do we not have the priesthood anymore? He's going to reveal to us in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews will also show us how Jesus descended from the throne to become a man, sharing our flesh and blood, that he might rescue people from death, judgment, and power of sin. If you ever wanted a summary of the gospel, there it is, basically. Jesus came and lived among us, died that perfect life, lived according to the law, fulfilled it completely, and rose again. And the book of Hebrews is going to present that time and time again. And I'm never going to apologize for that message being front and center every single week. And you're going to go, but Tim, we, we don't need to hear the gospel message every week. Come on. Every once in a while it's great, but every week? Is he not your Savior every week? Is he not your Savior every day? Does he not offer you forgiveness every time you sin, every moment of every day of every week? Is he not your Savior now? Then why not celebrate what he's done and what he has promised to do? That's the gospel. What has he done and what has he promised to do? It is a glorious thing to be reminded of every single time your attention goes to God. Oh, what has Jesus done? What will he promise? And what will I do in light of that? That's the whole summary of the Christian life. You can't live the life as a Christian each day without the gospel being front and center every single day, every single moment. He accomplishes this, this work of descending from the throne, becoming a man, sharing flesh and blood, uh, rescuing his people from death, judgment and the power of sin. He does that through something you already are very familiar with and that we will be celebrating this morning at the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, he says he's going to accomplish all this through the new covenant in my blood. And that word covenant is super, super important. And in fact, in the Old Testament, when we read about covenants, it really has the general idea of cutting. You go, covenant and cutting, where is this coming from? Well, the very foundation of that word covenant means to cut. 
Where, to cut what? This is where it gets a little gross. An animal in half. <laughs> okay, last time I'm going to mention that, this minute. Because it's going to be super, super important throughout the rest of the book of the Old Testament to see the grossness of sin. And we see the grossness of sin through sacrifice. And sacrifice is bloody. It is gross. It is filled with guts and smells and sounds and squishiness and ick. All over it, sacrifices. And a covenant is basically God cutting a covenant, making a covenant by blood. And a covenant is a bond of his word of what he's going to accomplish for you. The covenant is all based on him, not based on us. It's based on his faithfulness, his work, and his righteousness. And so the book of Hebrews can be summarized as Jesus versus everything and anyone that gets in the way of that covenantal relationship with God. Jesus is the star of the verses, of the stories, of the illustrations, and of the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament. If there's one message you're going to get repeated, and I'm repeating it on purpose consistently today, it's Jesus is the star. Every time we turn to another verse in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the star. Not me, not you, not traditions, but Jesus is the star. And I want him to be so... The whole reason why I'm going through this book, the whole reason why this is the next one in the series that I want to preach on is... There are sometimes life can be not just confusing, but it can be painfully filled with fear of what's next. And I think we have lived with a lot of fear of what's next. And to combat the fear of what's next, I need to be grounded in who I am now in Christ. And I believe that that is the greatest balance to fear, is to know, what does God say about me? What does God say about my present, my past, and my future? And in order to find that out, we need to look at who is Christ, what has he done, and what has he promised? Now, is it going to solve the fear of the unknown of what the future might bring? No, it won't. It won't solve it. But it will solve your tendency to be scared of the future by looking to him in the present. So let's start right away, right in the chapter 1. And we're going to actually go through just three verses today. And uh, because next week I think we're going to be looking at the rest of the chapter because it's all kind of combined together. But we're going to look at the first three verses and let me read those at the very start. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Very first verse, very first two verses, we are hit with the theme of Scripture, Jesus. Jesus is the theme of Scripture. From the very beginning to the very end, it is a book that describes who is Christ. It describes why do I need Christ. It describes what am I supposed to do in light of Christ. How am I supposed to live my life? It is all about Christ. Christocentristic is a word that theologians use to focus our attention on the one message of Scripture. It is Christ-focused. Christ-focused. You know, Scripture is not about man. It's not a story of human history. It is a story of how God intervenes in human history through his promised Messiah. It is a story of why we need Christ. And it is a story of what he has accomplished. And at the very beginning, God tells us that this message of who Christ is has been his main focus from the very, very beginning. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Beautiful summary of the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament all about? It is a summary of God delivering a message through the prophets. Now, the prophets is a general term used in the New Testament, especially to just simply mean someone who's pronouncing God's word. Not necessarily predicting the future, which we often think when we hear the word prophecy. We think, oh, that's something that's going to happen in the future. But prophecy, its most basic understanding in Scripture, is the declaration of God's Word, simply speaking. And so in a really weird sense, you could say right now, you are listening to prophecy. I know that sounds weird, but from a biblical standpoint, that's what it means, a declaration of God's Word. And it can entail the future. But right now, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying very uh, clearly, and let me just get that out of the way real quick. Um, we do not know who the author of Hebrews is. We do not know who it is. They do not identify themselves in the book, and church history does not identify who it was. It wasn't until about the 13, 1400s that they thought Paul probably was the author. But even early on during the first century, second century, it was very clear through the church fathers that no one knew who the author was. But it most likely, certainly, was not Paul. The, the, he, the, the language that he wrote in is completely different. Syntax, completely different uh, style of writing and language and uh, the sentence structure, completely different than what Paul wrote in the rest of his epistles. It could have been leading opportunity to be Priscilla, one of the only ladies that may have written an inspired book of the New Testament, Priscilla. Or it could have been Apollos. But it definitely was a second-generation type of Christian. It was not one of his disciples through some of the things that they talk about. Uh, so I will, by default, always say the author of Hebrews because I don't know who it is. Ultimately, of course, it's God. But we don't know who the human author was. 
But they start out by saying this message of Jesus is there from the very beginning. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But something changed in the New Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God used to call people from being a shepherd or a hunter or a gatherer or a warrior or just living their life at home used to call them and say, you are the one who's going to pronounce God's truth. So he'd raise them up and give them special abilities and talents, and they would be declaring God's word, and they'd serve as kings and priests and prophets. Long ago, that's how it happened in the Old Testament. But something changed when his son came on the scene. God said, from now on, I speak only through him. He is the pinnacle of the storytelling message of Scripture. He is the top. He is the best. He is the number one. He is the star of Scripture. Jesus Christ, his Son, speaking only through him at this time. And in fact, Jesus even says this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders arguing, and they're, they're debating him and really hating him at this point in his, in his uh, ministry. And Jesus says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus speaking. When Jesus is speaking about the scriptures testifying of him, what scriptures are he ta- is he talking about? What books? Well, he's talking about the Old Testament, the 39 books in the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about those particular books. All of them are talking about Jesus. How? I mean, he, the book of Genesis talks about him? Absolutely talks about him. What about the book of, oh, let's just throw out a real hard one. What about the book of Leviticus? You know what the book of Leviticus is all about? Sacrifices. How to do sacrifices. Well, yeah, that definitely talks about Jesus because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. Oh, okay, what about, um, well, you know what, it doesn't matter. Whatever book you choose, Christ is present in the book because he says he is. And see, there can be such a focus on memorizing Scripture, knowing stories, knowing the right answer from Scripture that you miss the point of it. Do you know what the point of it is? It is so that you would bow your knee and raise your hands in glorious praise and worship to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in all of his majesty and power, that you would love him, submit to him, and plead for his mercy and forgiveness. That you would be focused on Jesus, just like all the scripture is focused on Jesus. And in the past, God used men and women to present that message as prophets. But now... He presents Jesus, the fullness of that message, completely. That even leads Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, to say, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul planted a church and he established the churches and he evangelized and witnessed and grew Churches through his church growth, which was preaching, not programs, but preaching. He wanted one thing out of that whole relationship. 
He wanted to know Jesus more. Do you know enough about Jesus to satisfy yourself? Do you know enough about him? Do you know enough? Are you, are you done with all the stories? Have you heard them all enough that you go, Tim, I've heard all the stories about Jesus. I don't need any more. See, it's not the stories about Jesus that I want to share with you. I don't want to share with you stories and facts and verses that he said. I don't want you to fall in love with the stories about Jesus. I want you to fall in love with him. I want him to be your comfort, him to be your satisfaction, him to be your joy, him to be your love. You see, stories about Jesus will not protect you from fear. Stories about Jesus will not bring you lasting joy. Stories about Jesus will not bring you comfort and peace. It's Jesus that will bring you joy. It's Jesus that will bring you peace. It is Jesus that will bring you satisfaction and comfort and security and truth. Not stories about him, but him. The stories are there to point you to how wonderful and great he is as a Savior. All of it points to that relationship, not facts. And I know that we have been warned so many times that even the devil knows the stories. He knows them better than you will. He probably hasn't memorized. But it does him no good. Just like it did the Pharisees, no good. They studied it to study it to know the stories. But they did not study it to know the person behind the story. And that is the goal of the book of Hebrews, is that you would fall in love with the Son time and time again. And that is the message that Scripture has always presented. Jesus himself, it all talks about me. Paul, all I want to know is about him. All I want to know is Jesus and him crucified. Far greater than programs and events is to know Jesus and to love him and to know his love for you. The author of Hebrews continues right away after saying that the whole message is about the Son. He defines who the Son is, just in case we're a little bit unsure and he defines him at Jesus as God. He says, he, in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, continuing in verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. You know one of my favorite quotes? You probably know it by now. By a man named Abraham Kuyper. Remember the, the quote? There is not a square inch of this universe that Jesus does not declare mine. Mine. It's his. He's not in the business of discovering. It's his. He knows it. He made it. He created it. In fact, in that next very phrase, it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds it by the word of his power at the end of that verse 3. Jesus is masterfully sovereign in this universe. The heir of all things, it's his, through whom he created the world. 
That might be a trivia question. According to Scripture, who created the world? A lot of people will say, well, God the Father, he spoke it. But every time in the New Testament describes creation, it says the Son created it. The whole Trinity was involved in creating the universe, existence of life, of light, of everything that we see, feel, and experience. He's got to be a pretty important person then, the Son, who all the Scripture is about him, heir of all things, created the world, and we see also in verse 3, he is the radiant glory, radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not a single square inch is outside of his domain, power, and ownership. And that shouldn't scare you. It should amaze you. We are constantly on discovery mode. Everything is a discovery for us because everything looks different and changes, and we experience and learn. Jesus doesn't. He's not like us in that sense. He doesn't experience and learn and figure out discoveries. As God, he fully knows and fully owns it because he made it. He is God. He is God to the point that the author of Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God. That means when you see the Father or when you see the Son, you see the Father. We talked about this when we looked at the Trinity several months ago, this idea that Jesus is indeed who he claims to be. He is God. Scripture attests to that time and time again. He is equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There's no difference between the Father and the Son in their nature as God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All of those things are, they're big. Those are big things. Those are top. Those things are you start to think about it, and your mind, I think, quickly turns to jello because it's hard to figure those things out. What does it really mean that he's the heir of all things, that he created the world, that he's the radiant glory of God, that he's the exact imprint of his nature, and that he beholds the universe by the word of his power? This is the God who loves you. In all of that majesty, in all of that might, all of that power, all of that, wow, is he big and important. He says to his children, I love you. That's remarkable. That is simply remarkable. I, if your mind focuses on that, I don't know how it doesn't lead you to tears eventually. The more you think about the majesty and glory and might of the Son, Jesus Christ, how we are not driven to our knees in weeping and gratefulness. Why would a God with such ability and power and might 
ever turn his attention to any one of us? Why would he ever accept our praise and worship? Why would he ever listen to our prayers? Why would he ever give us a second thought? Does he not know what we're like? He knows exactly what we're like. He knows exactly that we are fallen. He knows exactly that our thought life is horrendous. He knows exactly what our envy and jealousy leads us to. He knows exactly where fear controls us. He knows exactly how we are dissatisfied. He knows exactly how quick we get angry. He knows exactly how fast we are to lust. He knows exactly how much we put confidence in money and stuff. He knows exactly how we idolize family above him. He knows exactly how sports takes a precedence over meditation and reading God's word. He knows exactly how careers spiral out of control. He knows exactly how damaging relationships can be. He knows exactly every word that you've spoken against someone. He knows it. And yet, he loves us. That is mind-boggling. Why? You're going to find an answer to that question, why. The answer is not hard. And you know the answer. You really do. He loves you because he's chosen you to have a relationship with him. In spite of who you are. Because he has promised that who you are in all of that sinfulness is not who you will become when he's finished with you. He is going to make you perfect. He is going to make you holy. He is going to make you a shining example of radiant love. He is going to make you into the image of his son. So he sees what we are, but he also knows what he's going to make us. And yet his love is still on us as sinners. Mind-boggling. In, uh, in Colossians chapter 2, 9 and 10, Paul writes, For in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Jesus is declaring all through Scripture, if you're looking for who's in charge, where does the buck stop, who's the one that everything is pointing to, Who's the star? It's him. Jesus is the star. No matter what you put up against it, he reigns supreme. He reigns supreme. Nothing that you can present is greater than Jesus. He continues at the end of verse 3 of chapter 1, still in the book of Hebrews. After making purification for sin... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
after making purification from sin, he's sat down. He's done. Jesus is finished. He's finished. Now, we use that word when we say, oh, someone is finished. What does that mean? They're gone. They're out of here. No, no more quarterback for him. He's finished. He's done. The coach finished. We kind of mean it's the end of their career, end of their role or responsibilities. But with Jesus, when he says he's finished, he is done with his roles and responsibility of purification from sin. What is purification from sin? Glad you asked. Because the rest of the book of Hebrews talks about what purification from sin really looks like. But I'll give you a hint. It has to do with cutting an animal in half and letting it bleed all over the altar. It's always going to come back to that. The cutting of the covenant. He says in John 19.30, one of the most remarkable verses of promise in all of Scripture, John 19.30, it says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He finished with what the Father asked him to do. The Father asked him to redeem a people, and he did it. And even Jesus himself says, it's finished. And proof that it's finished is Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Done. When someone sits down, that's a sign of what? Whatever they were doing, it's finished. Take a seat. And Jesus took not a seat, but the throne from which he ascended from, or descended from, he ascended back to that very same place of authority and rule and righteousness. But it does ask that question, what actually is finished? What really was finished on the cross? And for that, I think we have to go to the very first pronouncement of the gospel message in all of Scripture, which takes place in John, I mean John, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in which God made the promise that he would send and raise up the son of Adam and Eve to crush the serpent's head that is put to end the power and ability Satan has in our lives to destroy the curse of sin, to destroy the enemy of mankind, to destroy that which brought death and pain and sorrow and hard labor into our lives. Jesus was going to finish it. He was going to crush and defeat the enemy that brought us temptation and sin. Real quickly, I want us to take one moment and look at the book of Luke, chapter 2. This is where we're going to end today. And in the book of Luke, the very first chapters are about the birth of Christ, something that, you know, we celebrate and talk about all the time at Christmas. But one of the stories that doesn't often get a highlight in that Christmas message is what happens pretty much immediately eight days after Jesus was born. Now, the significance of eight days, the book of Hebrews will actually talk about, but that's when the male child had to be brought to the temple to be circumcised 
to fulfill Moses' promise of circumcision to identify that male child as a descendant, a covenantal part of the family of God. And two things remarkably happen at the day Jesus is brought to the temple. The first thing is Simeon has an outburst of praise to God. Now, who is Simeon? Verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he's waiting for the fullness of all of these promises to take place, and we're told the Holy Spirit, he was walking close with God. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. So he was not going to die. God revealed to him he's not going to die until he sees Jesus with his own eyes. So that had to be incredibly amazing for him. And it came to pass that in the spirit into the temple, when his parents had brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all the people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And in that same day, in that same moment, another lady approaches the entire situation, Anna, who was a prophetess for 80-some years, or maybe 70-some years in her life as a widow, And in verse 37, it says, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That was her kind of, that's how she lived her life. She was there in God's house, worshiping and praying every day and every night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. When she saw Christ, she had a natural response, I need to go tell people. Simeon was worshiping and blessing God, and her response was telling people of what she had seen in the temple. I think that's where we need to be as Christians when we hear about Jesus and we hear that relationship. We need to be about praising him for what he's done and then telling people what they can have with him. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask the elders and the worship team to come up, and we're going to celebrate that new covenant in his blood, and we're going to see that explained time and time again in fullness as we go through the rest of the book of Hebrews. I hope I haven't ruined it for you for that message. I knew I'd started off at a rocky start, uh, but I was a little bit confused. I was seeing things that were not on the screen. Let's pray. Not in an unhealthy way. Let's just pray. Father, you are majestic, and Lord, we want you to be the highlight of not just the message and the songs and the prayers, but of our very life. Lord, help us and be with us as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, that you would give us strength and nourishment spiritually to fight the fears and anxieties that we all face in our day and age. Remind us, Father, of the greatness of Jesus, and at his feet may we worship him, And may our feet go forward and declare his greatness. In his name, all of God's people said, amen.